Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Canzano's Baldface Truth. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with The Baldface Truth. Well, Oregon won a bowl game, and and that's about all, right? Last night, and is that enough, though? Is it enough to beat somebody 28-27 in your postseason game, get 10 wins, get some momentum into next season? I've had people today tell me and remind me that there is no better recruiter than winning. Like Dan Lanning, he could sell a comb to a bald guy. I'd buy one of those. But can Dan Lanning sell a 10-win team? Of course he can are you more or less encouraged with Bo Nix after last night's game? Are you more or less excited about Oregon in 2023 after last night's game? What did that win signify in your mind? 503-417-7575. You tell me. I'm going to answer those questions. Because I watched that game last night. It was highly entertaining, was it not? It was back and forth. You had good quarterback play on both sides. You had a great running performance by Bucky Irving. Uh, I was watching Mac Brown, 71 years old, coach against Dan Lanning, 36 years old. At some point, I wondered if Mac Brown was going to put Dan Lanning up on his knee and say, this is what, how you kick a field goal, son. And he did. He kicked field goals. But the Oregon Ducks pulled it out in the end. I thought it was a pretty gritty performance. I don't care about the point spread. I don't care about the fact that the turf sucked. It did. That was like a sandlot that they were playing on. I don't even care that Camden Lewis's game-winning extra point like clunked off the uh, upright or kissed the upright, depending on how you want to look at it. It went through. They got the job done. And in a lot of ways, that PAT, and I wrote this today at johnconzano.com, that PAT was a metaphor. It was a metaphor for everything that we've seen this season. It was uh, unpredictable. It was entertaining. It was a little gut-wrenching. It was uh, unexpected. It was good for the win. Uh, Oregon had a pretty nice season with 10 wins, lost the Civil War football game against Oregon State, lost the rivalry game with Washington. A lot of Duck fans will not be happy that they lost to their two biggest rivals. So you could sell me on the idea that, ah, 10 wins, but you can sell me on that today. But I woke up today more excited about Oregon in 2023 than I was a day earlier. And I woke up a little less uh, concerned about Bo Nix at quarterback. He didn't look right last night. He, he couldn't plant. He couldn't attack. Yes, I know he ran alongside Bucky Irving for 60 yards when Bucky scored on his 66-yard touchdown. A uh, lot to be proud of if you're... Uh, if you're an Oregon fan, 
or an Oregon player for that matter. But uh, in the end, I was a little bit, a little bit underwhelmed with Bo Nix attacking. Like he still didn't look right. Whether that's a high ankle sprain or some kind of Liz Frank problem or a fracture or whatever that thing is that's going on with Bo Nix that nobody will talk about, it's something that I still will be asking about come spring football because I want to know that he's right. And we'll see if he participates. We'll see what happens. But Bo Nix got it done. Uh, I, I got a lot of respect for him finishing the season, being injured. Look around professional sports. Look around college sports. There's a whole bunch of people opting out. A whole bunch of people saying, oh, no, it's not in my best interest to stick around and finish the season or even be here in a capacity that I'll be holding a clipboard and wearing a headset. So there's a whole lot of quitting going on in sports, and Bo Nix did not quit. So I got a lot of respect for Bo Nix and what Oregon did. And I am not one of these people that's going to sit back and go, oh, they were a 14-point favorite, and they barely won to North Carolina. Uh, I told you yesterday that I liked Oregon to win the game but not cover the 14-point spread. By the way, I'm now 3-0 and on my Pac-12 bowl picks, looking for some wood here, knocking on wood as Washington plays Texas in the Alamo Bowl tonight. I've got Washington winning the game outright. They're a 45 to 55 point underdog, depending on when you bet it in the last week or so. But I think Washington's going to win the game tonight. And that's what the point of bowl games are. Postseason games, Al Davis said it best. He said, just win, baby. That's what postseason games are about. But I want you to tell me, do, are you more or less excited about Oregon in 2023? Are you more or less concerned about Bo Nix after last night's performance? And let's grade Dan Lanning a little bit. What did he do well this season? What did he struggle with? Because I thought he was at his best in the post game on the podium, accepting the trophy last night from the Holiday Bowl folks, the Redcoats they called themselves. I thought he was at his best because he's a unifier. He is a, a galvanizer of people. He builds good culture. Again, I'm talking about the things he does well. He, you could tell that the players are excited to play for him. And it comes through on game day. It, I've watched him in the pregame warm-ups. When he walks around, he's kind of visiting with his players. He's, he's got a little bit of rah-rah in him. And you can tell that his team likes him. And I watched it on uh, you know the early signing period. As kids said, I want to play for that guy. And he had great success in the early signing period. But Dan Lanning did struggle in some ways this season. And they were ways that don't surprise me one bit. I think when we look at the, uh, you know, the totality of his season, he had some game management issues. And, look, I told you when he was hired, I felt like 36-year-old, first-time, first-year head coach. He goes out and he hires coordinators in Kenny Dillingham and Tosh Lapoy, who were relatively inexperienced as play callers themselves. He didn't have a lot of gray hair on that staff. And I was concerned, and if you're a listener to the show, you know I was concerned about game management from go. And I thought, gosh, I wish he had a Dennis Erickson on his staff. Gosh, I wish he had a Mike Riley as a consultant or a Chris Peterson or somebody to lean on in game management situations. What do I do here on fourth and one from my own 29? Hell, you probably thought Dan Lanning was going to go for it last night on fourth and three inside his own 20. But he struggled with that stuff this season. I think it cost him. He also, I think, I think they pushed Bo Nix in a way that I wouldn't push him next year, and hopefully they learn from it. I think they were running Bo Nix a little too much, a little too aggressively in the middle part of Oregon's season this season, and I think it bit him a little bit. 
And ultimately, I think next year you've got to start the year by going, hey, we've got to protect the quarterback. If you're going to use him as an attacker, use him in the big games. Use him against Washington. Use him against USC. Use him against Utah. But you don't need to be running him against Cal and some other teams that you're going to beat anyway just for the sake of running him unless you just want to show that. So I think there were some areas where he could get better, and I think they will get better. But I gave him a B-plus B today in print. I said, you know, I thought the game management stuff – uh, you know, I don't like that they get to the end of the game, they still have all their timeouts, and I'm going, hey, man, you know, use those things. You can't take them with you. And I don't like sometimes that uh, they do some wonky things situationally. I think they struggle a little bit with stuff that you just pick up coaching over decades. And, you know, Mac Brown's on the other sideline, 71 years old. He, he knows a field goal when he sees one. And Dan Lanning, he's got a great kicker. And Camden Lewis uh, passed an opportunity earlier in the game that could have made it a little easier down the stretch. I'm just saying. But I, I think that all in all, it's a good first season. Dan Landing gets 10 wins. He joins Mike Bellotti and Chip Kelly and Mark Helfrich and Mario Cristobal as coaches who had 10-win seasons. Only Chip Kelly, Helfrich, and Lanning have done that in their first season. And I, and, I, and I put an asterisk with Mark Helfrich because he inherited Marcus Mariota. I mean, so it's really Chip Kelly and Dan Lanning who both won 10 games in their first season. That's pretty remarkable. I don't think you should scoff at that if you're, as, if you're an Oregon fan. But you tell me, did that game last night, that Holiday Bowl victory, 28-27 over North Carolina, did that make you more or less excited about Oregon, more or less concerned about Bo Nix? And, oh, by the way, what do you think of Dan Lanning's first season as coach of the Oregon Ducks, do you leave it uh, thinking about the games that got away? Do you leave it thinking, hey, that's a good building block? You tell me, as you look at uh, the totality of the season, uh, what you make of what you saw. So, uh, you know, I'll tell you this, Judah Newby, you're in studio. Uh, what did you think of last night? More or less excited about next year, more or less concerned about Bo Nix, and what do you think of Dan Lanning? Yeah, it's fun, man. It's a fun finish to the season, a, a fun holiday bowl. I was going into it, uh, like, not expecting much, you know, with all the absences on both sides. But then, you know, Gus Johnson pops on the mic, Joel Klatt's there as well, and it, it, it ended up having a big game feel more than I thought it would. You're right, Bo didn't look fully healthy. The touchdown throw to Chris Hudson, though, was awesome. Like, you know, a little half roll out right, just ripped that thing. Drake May had a couple of moments, but you look at the box score, and it doesn't pop out. You know, Drake May, under six yards in attempt. Like, Oregon defensively did all right in this game. It was just the big play before half got him. And, you know, they held Carolina field goals at the end, and it gave their offense the chance. Am I more excited about next year? I'm unmoved. Last night is an unmoved situation for me. I'm the same as I was going into the game as I am right now. So I'm, I differ from you in that respect. I still have the same questions about Bo, about Dan, about the future of the defense. This is just too much of an outlier of college football context to, to make any you know sways one way or the other for me based on this holiday bowl. I'm going to go to the phone lines. Uh, 503-417-7575 is the number. You tell me, more or less excited, Dan Lanning, an evaluation, and Bo Nix, uh, more or less concerned about him. i got to say that I'm not less concerned about Bo Nix uh, after last night because I was hopeful that we would see some progress. I hope we would see him attack a little bit, look a little better running the ball, but five carries for six yards. His longest run was six yards. He ran out of necessity. 
not out of opportunity, not with aggression. I didn't, I didn't like it, man. I, and I felt all along that he was struggling a little bit just to be out there, and I didn't like that feel. Let's go to the phones. Bill's in Gresham. Bill, what would you think? Hey, uh, first of all, Happy New Year. Great show, John. Thank you. Yeah, brother. Um, and Judah made a good point, too. With Gus Johnson calling the game, man, you know, the, the dude could call – like the Rutgers spring game, and it would sound like the Super Bowl. So, um, you know, it, he brings that big game feel to it, and I'm always excited when he calls our game. Um, and I'm a Tennessee fan, first off, but when my wife and I moved to Oregon, uh, I found out that you, you basically got to pick between Oregon and Oregon State. Uh, I, you know, I've come to appreciate both teams. I think they're both great teams. Uh, Oregon State's that gritty kind of underdog team that can whip anybody, you know, when they're not looking. But I, I really do like the Oregon program. You know, they, they came and whipped us in Tennessee and Knoxville back in, I think it was 2011, right before we moved out here. We had a home and away with, with Oregon. And, and so seeing, the, the, you know, all the progress, the, the transition to Lanning as the head coach, um, you know, I, I think you guys got a winner. I think what's the problem is that, you know, folks aren't very patient in the college football world. But I think Lanning is going to be a good, you know, he's not going to be a short-term guy. He's he's probably going to be around for a few years, maybe, you know, six to ten years, something like that, if he keeps winning. Um, I agree with your assessment, B+. Plus. Uh, if he had got you guys to the playoffs, it would be an A-plus year. Uh, but like us, you know, you guys stumbled down the stretch. Uh, but overall, I think he's done well. He's an exceptional recruiter. And I just uh, – I think you guys are in good shape. That's my take. Appreciate the perspective. Uh, Oregon beat Tennessee in Knoxville in 2010. That was the lightning game, 48-13, uh, and then beat uh, Tennessee in Eugene, 59-14 in 2013. That was uh, Mark Helfrich against Butch Jones in the second one. Good point, good perspective from uh, an SEC fan there. Let's go to Rick, who's in Eugene, listening on Fox Sports Eugene. Rick, what do you got? Hey, John. Uh, I think I agree with you, B-plus. Um, the one thing that I, I am excited about is Dan Lanning's character. I think um, that was an A-plus hire. You listen to the guy talk, and he's very genuine. I think he's a great recruiter. And also... You know, there's been a lot of talk about the defense this year. I just don't think Dan Lanning really had his guys this year. I think three years down the road we're going to see that he didn't forget how to coach a defense. Um, and last night I was – I don't know who was calling the plays. I watched the game. It really reminded me um, about the middle part of the game of a Mario Cristobal offense where they just mm -hmm. ran and ran and ran. It got really predictable. And in the fourth quarter, I think about seven minutes to go, it's like they opened up the playbook and let Nick throw the ball um, and, you know, pulled it out and, and won. And um, I'm super excited about next year. Yeah. I, look, I think, uh, too, the other thing we got to remember is I don't think it's easy. And I wrote this today. I don't think it's easy for a coach to come in, take over a program, and you're inheriting the core group of contributors on your team who were recruited by somebody else. The Noah Sewell's. Uh, you know, the, the, the guys that were expected to have good seasons, uh, who were returners, all were Mario Cristobal guys. I don't think it's easy to galvanize that kind of group. And I think that's where Dan Lanning was at his best.
And I think he was at his worst when it was fourth and one from his own 29. And he had a timeout, and he didn't use it. He didn't give himself a, time, a timeout to think about the play or what he was doing. Last night, I cringed a little bit down the stretch because I saw Mac Jones calling timeouts, and I said, that's a 71-year-old guy who's won a whole bunch of games who knows the value of a field goal and knows the value of a timeout. And I go, Landing's going to take those timeouts into the offseason with him. And I think that game management, that game strategy, all of that stuff will come. And I'm eager to see what they look like with Dan Lanning's guys as he brings his recruits to campus uh, for next season. Uh, Matt is in Portland. Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, John. How's it going? Going well, man. Hey, so I just wanted to weigh in on Dan Lanning and just kind of the overall um, Oregon, you know, season. Honestly, like, he blew away my expectations. I expected Oregon to honestly be an 8-4 and four team this year with Dan Lanning coming in as, you know, a new head coach. And honestly, the way that he molded a bunch of guys that he got from the transfer portal, guys who were there, as well as a new coaching staff, I thought he did a very good job meshing and melding them together. And I thought he did a great job of identifying talent in coaches as well as in players. I think that's a huge strength of his. Um, and it's something that I think is really going to define him as a head coach. Um, and so that's kind of that's kind of my take on him as far as, like, seeing that. I do agree with you that um, – I do agree with you that um, he does definitely need some game-time um, management experience. And he did give a nod to North Carolina's head coach who has won a lot of games and is a legend as a head coach. And I really think that – he could learn from somebody like that, and I would love to see him in the future um, kind of, you know, uh, get some gray hairs on his uh, coaching staff um, to just kind of come alongside him and um, and just, you know, work with him in that regard. Um, beyond that, I really think that he's an A-plus talent and um, just happy that they got the win against North Carolina last night. Yeah, you look at Mac Brown and you look at his career, 33 years overall in football he's coached 400 games 408 games in his career and dan lanning is at 13 games and so there's a big difference in situational awareness game management all of that stuff comes uh, rears its head i want your take on the game last night more or less encouraged grade dan lanning's year one and I'm with, uh, I'm with the callers who think he needs an analyst or an advisor on his staff that, that has been there before and coached a little. Hell, put Nick Aliotti in the booth. Put a headset on him. Just let him talk in your ear a little bit, coach. That kind of stuff, I think, is valuable. 503-417-7575. You weigh in. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Thursday night football tonight right here on 750 The Game in Portland. In the Pac-12, you've got the Alamo Bowl taking place tonight. Washington playing against Texas in the Alamo Bowl. Ten-win Washington, a four-and-a-half to five-and-a-half point underdog against uh, eight-and-four Texas. Uh, I think Washington's going to win that game. I, I, I would not want to mess with Michael Penix, Jr., I think the only factor that gives me pause 
is the game being in Texas and the possibility that the momentum that Washington had, especially on the offensive side of the ball, will stall a little bit with the time off. That's it. The rest of this, I, I just like Washington more than I like Texas. I think you're going to stress Texas's offense out by scoring 40 points and putting a lot of pressure on uh, the offensive uh, game plan that Steve Sarkeesian has at Texas. Uh, 503-417-7575 is a phone number. I want your phone calls. Tell me what you think of the bowl game last night. Let's jump out to Roy, who's in Portland. Roy, what's on your mind, man? Hey, John. You know, I have to give Landon a C, man. I give him a C, man. You can't come with an A or a B, man. Listen, Oregon's got more talent than anybody in the Pac-12 other than USC. I mean, you got a veteran quarterback, man. You lose to your rival. You lose to Oregon State. You don't even get to that Pac-12 championship. And, and and you lose to Washington. You lose to both of your biggest rivals. That's not an A. That's not an A or a B season, man. You know, Jonathan Smith, he gets an A. Kellen DeBorg, he gets an A because they wasn't expected to do what they did. That's an A plus season. Uh, Kyle Winningham, he gets an A because he get back to the he went back to the Pac-12 championship and he won. That's an A season. Uh, Lenning, I'm just, you know, that's a C season, man. You barely won the bowl game yesterday. You won, I'll give you that, but. That's just an average season. If you coming in with the talent that Oregon, people talking about, well, he doesn't have his guy. Man, you got four and five. It's not like you got like Arizona's team or something. You got the most talent in the big in the Pac-12 other than USC. So getting your so-called guys in, that, that's not going to change anything. You still got five and four stars up and down the roster at Oregon. So, I mean, I, I don't know what. Dan Lanning is going to become, I don't know what the Pac-12. Can you tell me what the Pac-12 is going to become once USC and UCLA leave? Then I will I think, know about Yeah, about I, think it'll be fine. I think it'll be fine. I think you're going to see Pac-12 teams in the playoff. I don't know if USC or UCLA will make the playoff playing in the Big Ten. But to your point, Roy, I mean, look, I, I think on paper we, we agree that Oregon's got talent. But I think I look, you know, the all-conference team comes out at the end of the year. I look at the first-team offense. Oregon had two players who made it. They were both offensive linemen, a little bit surprised. We have UCLA and Utah and USC players dominating the first team. Then I look at the first-team defense. Oregon had one first-team player on defense, Christian Gonzalez, the defensive back. Uh, Utah, Washington, USC, UCLA, all over that first team. I agree on Jonathan Smith. I think I think he outcoached just about everybody in the conference this year. But I, I'm going to give Dan Lanning a little bit of a larger berth. I think it was his game management needs work. But, I, you know, I don't know what it is to come in in a first year and win 10 games and have people go, hey, you got to see. I don't know. I, hello? Yeah, you're on. You're on. Oh, yeah. I don't know, John. I just think it's, man, I just think it's a C season. When you, when you lose to Oregon State and you lose to Washington, and then you don't even make it. Now, had he made it to the to the Pac-12 championship game, I would have said, okay, that's a B, that's an A season. But when I'm looking at the roster, yeah. you got to at least make it to the championship game. You don't got to win. But I was expecting more out of Oregon this season. I was at least expecting you to be Oregon State and Washington. So yeah, I was surprised. I, I, I was surprised I they lost both those games. I thought I was surprised if you would have told me at the beginning of the season they were losing both those games, I would have said it was a dismal year. I uh, appreciate Roy in Portland. Roy's got a big game on the horizon. Is George? Nobody's going to touch Georgia. Let me get Roy back real quick. Hey, Roy. Roy, you still there? Yeah, I'm still here, John. All right. Who's going to beat Georgia in the playoff? Nobody. Man, no, nobody's going to beat us. Uh, we're going to win again. Back-to-back national championships. You know, um, you got these guys coming down to dog country. 
to try to, you know, I mean, come on. They're not going to win. Ohio State, you don't, don't even show up, man. I, mean, I love how they're hyping up. Everyone's hyping up Ohio State. I don't think they're close in that game. John, this is going to be I, – I, I, we're going to win it by at least, I say, two touchdowns. Over, I agree. At least two touchdowns over Ohio State. You know, and then if we play Michigan or TCU, it doesn't really matter. Whoever we play, nobody has beaten us this year. And um, once again, we're going for you know we're going for the repeat, and um, you know we're just a, we're just the best team in the country. It's just it's just not even close. We're gonna you see know? what uh, we'll see how I grade Kirby Smart. He's got more talent than anybody. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Kirby Smart. I will admit he got more talent. But look at Jimbo Fisher. He got more talent than me in a lot of teams too. But he sucks. <laughs> so I mean, you know, I mean, you have to be able to. Come. I will agree. You got to be able to coach the talent. Yeah. But uh, you know, I mean, Lanning may be. You know, I, I I like Lanning, but I just I just think you cannot lose to Oregon State and Washington and not be in the Pac-12 yeah. championship and be a B or A season. I don't I don't give him an A. I gave him a B plus. But I feel like uh, Oregon State and Washington were good teams this year. They they weren't slouchy. Sam and Eugene, what do you think? Roy in Portland gives a C to Dan Lanning and. I don't think that's unfair if you think his job this year, if you think Dan Lanning was brought in to win the conference and make it to a playoff this year, then a C would be a fair grade. Dan Lanning was brought in to recruit. If you look at every decision that Rob Mullins and Phil Knight have made in the last five years, their plan is very, very clear. They want to bring in a head coach that can recruit, and it's super important with the portal today to not only be able to recruit guys out of high school but recruit guys in the portal and develop relationships with your own players and recruit them to stay on your roster. So they're they brought him in to recruit. You know, they. I, I believe what they're going to do is, you know, what they've already shown you they do. When they brought in, you know, Willie Taggart and they brought in Mario Cristobal, they brought in an all-recruiting staff around him to get as many good guys in the program as possible. And then once you have guys in the program, like they had Kayvon Thibodeau in, then they bring in these, these former head coaches to come be their coordinators, like Tim DeRuiter was yeah. the head coach at Fresno State, and Joe Moorhead was a head coach at Mississippi State before they came to be coordinators for the Ducks. Once they get the talent in the door, they're going to bring in guys with game management experience and guys that have been there and and that's going to be more their role but you got to have the guys in the door before you can start you know making those things so when i look at this season i wish we would have made it to the conference championship game but their job is to get players in the door i think there's going to be a lot of conference championships to come because they're laying the foundation for something awesome here so yeah i, I, I think it's going to be a dog fight though i i think next season's going to be a dog fight because i think you got washington you got usc you've got utah You've got Oregon State. You've got Oregon. You know, you. I think it's going to be. Uh, it's going to be an absolute dogfight. I. I just think there's so many good teams, and there are some teams we're not even talking about that I think are going to matter in ways that they haven't mattered. Like Colorado with Deion Sanders, has got an identity all of a sudden, and Washington State is not a gimme, and nor is Arizona. And so I think the Pac-12 next year. I think they're proving in the bowl season that they were a pretty good conference. Their non-conference record supported that. But, I, you know, I don't think you can stack them up against the SEC. I don't think you can stack them up against the Big Ten at the top. Uh, but I think beyond that, I think the Pac-12 is right there uh, behind those two conferences as the number three conference. And, you know, I will debate that all day long with people from the Big 12 and the ACC. But I think the Pac-12 at the end of the rainbow is going to be 5-2 and two in their seven bowl games. They are, you know, currently sitting at 2-1. and one. We'll see in the coming days. We're going to go to the Alamo Bowl next. Remember the Alamo? Mike Varell, beat reporter for the Seattle Times, is there. He's covering Washington against Texas. They're going to kick off in a little bit. 
Burrell will join us in front of kickoff. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Nobody wanted to play Washington at the end of the regular season. They were playing better football than anyone. Mike Farrell, beat reporter from the Seattle Times, has been covering the crud out of this team all season long. He's been all over it. You want to read about the Huskies? Read Mike Farrell, Seattle Times. He's joining us from the Alamo Dome in San Antonio, Texas. Give us the scene, Mike. What's the scene on the, on the Riverwalk? Yeah, I mean, it's been, uh, I've been here since Monday, and there was a lot of purple and gold. I was impressed by the UW turnout, but, you know, come this afternoon, I came downstairs in the hotel, and it was just a sea of burnt orange. Obviously, Texas, Austin is located about 80 miles away from here, so I think people wrapped up uh, their shortened work week and came on down, and it is just a sea of orange. It's going to be very loud in the Alamo Dome, and that's something that UW is prepared for, but it's a Definitely a unique environment, and, you know, for Pac-12 teams, they're used to being the road team in this game, and that is especially the case tonight. Yeah, you're going to get a lot of Texas, pro-Texas love. Steve Sarkeesian on the Texas sideline. How, how big a storyline has that been in your world? It's a storyline. I feel like there is some remove from that. You know, it's a complicated legacy, right, because he, you know, he did leave this program to go to USC, but he also took a program that was winless and brought it back into bowl contention. He didn't reached the heights that Chris Peterson did, but you could argue that he positioned the program to be able to be carried to those heights. So I mean, I think it's far enough removed where there isn't a whole lot of ill will, but it's certainly interesting that Sarkeesian was the coach the last time the Huskies were here. So it's, I would say it's more of a note than a storyline. These players don't really have any connection to him, but it, it, it's something that the fans obviously care about. The you know the, A lot of bold teams will get to games and you go, Gosh, do they want to be here? Like, I'm wondering if USC wants to be in the Cotton Bowl. I know Washington fans and players probably thought about the Rose Bowl down the stretch. They needed some help, but they didn't get there. Will there be a letdown on the Washington side, or are they excited, Mike, to be in this game? Yeah, no, I think there is not any doubt that Washington wants to be here. They obviously haven't played in a bowl game in the last two years, and I think this bowl game is more about 2023 than anything when you've got – you know, Michael Penix Jr. opts back in, Troy Fatano, Jalen McMillan, you know, both their edges, ZTF and Braylon Trice. They've had a wave of guys come back because they believe in what's happening here and they think they can build to next season. But I think that starts now, and I think you, you make the right impression tonight. You know, you maybe you get a, a top-10 ranking coming out of this season. You're a top-10 team going into 2023. I think that's all important. So as much as they want to win this game, I think really what they want to do is position themselves for what, for what they're hoping to accomplish next season. Yeah, and I think Michael Penix Jr., the momentum that Washington had late in the year, if they continue that momentum, I think no problem. They're going to score 40 points in this game. Uh, Are there any concerns that the time off disrupts the offensive timing more than anything? It's hard to know because, I mean, they do have all the same personnel. They didn't have any opt-outs. I think that's probably the biggest thing. And, you know, they hadn't had all that time together, you know, outside of practices before the opener. And, of course, they, they've scored points all year long, even from the jump. So, you know, I think you, you, you'd you expect the timing to be there. I'm just curious about, you know, Texas has a, a pretty big physical front seven. How are they going to match up? It's obviously an offense that has protected Michael Penix Jr. supremely well all season. Will they continue to be able to do that? Uh, that's going to answer a lot of questions in itself in this one. 
Mike Farrell, Seattle Times, is with us. Kalen DeBoer, uh, co-coach of the year. Great year for him to start off. Uh, signing day is, you know, part of the bowl season. That comes. How did he come out of signing day in your mind? Yeah, I think it was a positive day for them. They don't have the flashiest class. They didn't do, you know, what Oregon did, but I think it was a big deal to flip Caleb Presley from Oregon to get the top player in the state of Washington. That's the biggest place where they probably have to improve going forward is just to, to lock down those in-state kids. But I think they also address needs. Where you talk about, you know, if you count transfers, they're adding six or seven DBs to this class, and that's the biggest that's the biggest weakness, as, as everyone knows, on this team. And, and I think they've got some talent. They've got some obvious fits in this class, and, and they've added – a really quality transfer class that right now is ranked as the number six transfer class in the country. So I think that they're, they're really making prudent moves when you look at what they needed on this roster to address. Kalen DeBoer, uh, obviously they go into this game, they have a better record than Texas. They have a better ranking than Texas. I know you've written about this this week. I'm still wrestling with how are they an underdog, a four and a half or five and a half point underdog in this game. I have them winning the game outright, but is that sticking in the craw of Kalen DeBoer and, and those Husky players? You know, if you talk to Kalen, I just don't. I think he's so uh, he's such a nice guy. I don't know how much he cares about that kind of thing. I mean, the players, though, as you know, they'll, they'll twist anything into motivation, and there's not a lot of twisting that needs to happen here. And, and I feel like there's a sense, you know, as, as Oregon knows, as those other programs know, when you're in the Pac-12 and you're facing right now, a Big Ten program, uh, a Big 12 uh, Blue Blood, an SEC program, there's this thought that you're a Pac-12 afterthought to a certain degree. I think that's certainly the way they're approaching this game. Now, how much will that matter? It's hard to say. But like you said, I feel like these bowl games, a lot of times when it's not a New Year's Six, it comes down to which team wants to play and win this game. And I feel like there's no doubt that Washington is motivated. Michael Penix Jr.'s mother tweeted that her flight, Southwest Airlines flight, got canceled. She drove 17 hours. It looks like she's arrived from Florida to Texas. Um, are the is, is the travel and the airline stuff going to stop some fans, or is it just make it harder for everybody to get there? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely stopped some fans from the UDEP perspective. Like you said, the Panics who drove 17 hours, not everyone is willing to do that. And I know with the Southwest cancellations, with other cancellations from all over the place, it's been pretty difficult for, for UDEP's fan base. There are a lot of Huskies here, but, you know, it was already difficult. When you talk about maybe outside of El Paso, when you think about uh, the Pac-12's bowl options, it's not easy to get from Seattle to San Antonio and to do it um, at a reasonable price. So, you know, it, it, there was always going to be more Texas fans in the, state, in, the, in the stadium tonight. That might especially be the case given what's happened over the last couple of days in terms of flights. Keys to the game in your mind, uh, as, uh, as my listeners are watching this game what what kinds of things will you be looking for in the press box there and by the way nice press box there at the alamo dome you've got a nice sight line in that press box as i recall yeah i covered a game here when i covered notre dame back in 2016 the press box is about as low to the to the field as any you'll encounter which obviously is a positive i think the biggest thing for for washington can they stop the run you know obviously texas does not have uh their star running back Bijan robinson is going to the nfl but they're not going to change who they are. This is a team that's been really physical throughout the year, and especially in the last couple of games. Um, running up front, Washington has been inconsistent. They've done a good job most of the year, but when they went up against Oregon, as you know, they got run over. So can they be physical? Can they match that? And then offensively, can they protect Michael Penix Jr. and allow him to do what he's really done all season, no matter the opponent, which is to pick those opponents apart and to spread the love uh, to his wide array of wide receivers and tight ends. 
What does winning this game mean for next season? If it's about 2023, what does it mean for for Washington? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how big any non-New Year Six can be, but I, I do think, like I said, it's it's positioning you for, for what you want to accomplish. And it's pretty clear what this team wants to accomplish. When you've got Panics come back, when you've got McMillan come back, Vitano, uh, both of their edges, all these guys who could have been picked in the first two days of the draft, they've all said unfinished business. They want to get in the Pac-12 title game. Some of them think they should have been there this year. Obviously, the, the tiebreaker scenarios didn't let that happen. They want to win the Pac-12, and they want to uh, position themselves to, to possibly compete for the playoffs. And how realistic you know you think that is, I guess that's up for interpretation, but uh, this is the first step. You have to prove that you can beat a team like Texas with, with resources that Texas has, because if you want to get to where you're winning that New Year's Six games, where you're, you're in playoff contention, these are the kind of games that you've got to be able to perform and really convince the rest of the nation that you're that quality team. I, I watched Texas this year, and I thought at times, you know, they had some injuries, uh, but obviously they got it on track enough to, to go 8-4 and four and get to the Alamo Bowl. I just think Washington's the better team in this game. I, am I crazy, Mike? Am I being a Pac-12 homer? No, I mean, I, I, I'm probably spoiling later in the interview, but I'm picking Washington to win this game. I, I feel like Texas is very, very solid across the board. Defensively, they're physical. They do a lot of things pretty well. I don't know that they're dominant in anything. And then offensively, they've run the ball very effectively. Uh, their passing game has not been explosive. Uh, Quinn Ewers, who a couple years ago was the number one QB in the country in his class coming out of high school, really hasn't been able to stretch the field vertically. So the question is, you know, obviously teams have done that against UW all season. Their, their secondary has been a big issue. Can they hit the long ball in this game? Uh, he hasn't done it very consistently. So I think both of these teams are flawed, but I think Washington's strengths are massive strengths. So we'll see how they match up, but but I certainly like UW as well. Yeah, I, I, I just I feel like Washington's going to score about 41 points in this game, and I can't see Texas with their offense. I can't see them getting there without their star running back. I got him in the 30s, and, you know, I have it something like 41, 34, 35, something like that. But how did you pick it? Did you give a score? I picked uh, Washington 37, uh, Texas 34, and a pretty similar idea. I just think, you know, if you follow Washington, they've been consistent. They really play one kind of game, and uh, they score, and they score, and they score, and they hope for a turnover, a punt. They, they hope for a break uh, on the other side. And, and there have been games where they've obviously rushed the passer very well and stopped the run to some degree. But I, I feel like uh, the elements are going to be difficult. I think this is a physical Texas team that's going to give Washington some, some problems. But, you know, they've followed the formula all season long, and they've got an awful lot of momentum. And like you mentioned, they're motivated. Washington really wants to be here. There's Texas. I think that answer is going to go a long way to determining what we end up seeing. Best meal that you've had uh, since arriving in Texas? Oh, wow. I went to this Mexican place called Los Barrios, which uh, Brandon Huffman, a great recruiting reporter mm-hmm. for 24-7, yeah. uh, pointed me to. And they've got these uh, puffy tacos with a little bit of a thicker tortilla. Mm. And it was so tender. Uh, it was crispy. It was everything you could want. It was something that Seattle does not offer. So I was very thankful walking out of there. You know what I think we got to start doing? we got to start writing these things down. Because I always felt like sports writers, <laughs> because you're traveling around, you're going to a bunch of restaurants, you know, we could save the public as a public service. We could have like a, uh, you know, a, a Yelp for sports writers where we go, here are the places you need to eat if you're in San Antonio, and, and it would be a big hit. It's not the transfer portal, but we need our own database that everybody can access <laughs> and use kind of That's the same right. formula. That's right. All right. Hey, have some fun, Mike. You've been a joy to read this season. Uh, you, you got a fun team to cover, 
Uh, it should be a fun game tonight. I appreciate you joining us. All right. Thanks, John. See you. All right, there he is from the Seattle Times, Mike Farrell. He does a really good job, all right? Uh, as beat reporters go across the Pac-12 conference, uh, I don't bring garbage onto the show. I bring the reporters who cover the teams in the best way, in the most uh, in-depth uh, and accurate way. Uh, I bring them onto the show, and Farrell does a good job. Judah Newby, I like Washington to win the game outright. Where do you stand on Washington, Texas, and the Alamo Bowl? I want to believe you. I want to believe you. I want to believe Mike. I want to buy into all of that. And and yet, why is Texas favored? You know, and then I the know. home field. And I think you make a good point about the momentum. I'll still pick Washington because I'm I'm going to pick the Pac-12 over over Sark and the uh, the ultimately SEC bound Longhorns. Um, and I just love to see the Pac-12 win in that environment. But that is a weird betting line. You're right. Yeah, I well, I saw that line come out. And I was surprised. Texas, it's now down to three and a half. Texas is a three and a half point favorite. Um, I think Washington is going to win the game. I have it 41-35. That's the official pick I made. It opened with Texas as a four and a half point favorite. It's been bet down to three and a half. I don't think it matters. I think the underdog wins the game. And I think Washington probably likes where they are. Uh, going, hey, look, we're the higher ranked team. We're from the Pac-12. Nobody gives any respect to the Pac-12, and uh, we won more games in Texas this year in a in a tougher conference, and nobody respects it nonetheless. Uh, but I think, Mike, here's what I think is going to happen, and for people who are going to watch this game, I think Texas will score in the 30s. But I think the pressure, and Varel alluded to it, the pressure that Washington puts on you, and it happened against Oregon, it happened against Oregon State. It happened against Washington State. It's happened all year long with Washington winning games. Whether it's a close, low-scoring game or a high-scoring game, their offense is a threat to go down the field and score on every possession. They just put pressure on your offense to go out and match them. And I don't think Texas can stay with Washington in this kind of game. Our big splash is coming up. I have so much to talk about. Leave it here. you got the BFT. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Pele passed away today at the age of 82, complications uh, with cancer. How do we... How do we sort of encapsulate or summarize Pele's contributions to the world? Judah, like how you're doing an update, let's say, so to speak. In top of the hour, here's Judah Newby with the news. Pele has passed away at the age of 82. What are the next couple of sentences that you would use? He's a legend. He was the you know, measuring stick against which all legendary players uh, were measured. You know, the, the Messis, the Ronaldos, everyone gets kind of compared to Pele. And we actually had a conversation in the newsroom today about that. Uh, you know, our news partners at KXL, we share a working space and they were like, would you call Pele the greatest player ever? And I, I was like, yeah, I would. And someone in the back was like, well, why, what about Maradona? 
And like you know, we're all casual soccer fans, but immediately you go. Was that Ferretti? Like, was that Ferretti who said Maradona? No, Ferretti was the one asking me, and oh, okay. uh, it was a different. It was one of the producers <laughs> of the the afternoon yeah. newscast was like, "Well, where yeah. about Maradona?" And I'm like, "Well, I don't know, maybe." And all of a sudden, we're debating it. Before Maradona fun. got overweight and coked out, he might have been right there. Well, rest in peace, you know, <laughs> yes. Maradona as well, you know. But uh, and Pele has you know Portland connections. I know he played at Providence Park once. They've got a plaque up there for. For him, um, you know, where they have the plaques outside the stadium. That's kind of cool. But you know, outside of that, I consider him the most legendary soccer player ever. And and that sums it up for me. There's a uh, dispute over his goal count. He had 1,363 matches. The Guinness Book of World Records says he scored 1,279 goals in 1,363 matches. Basically, if you showed up to see him play, you were going to see him score. And... Um, I would call him legendary Brazilian soccer player. I think there are very few people I would say are legendary. I also think if we start to think about superstars of today, like the greatest players in the NFL today, the NBA today, Tom Brady, LeBron, uh, you know, we're going to say these were generational players, but we're not going to say that LeBron helped popularize the NBA. We're not going to say Tom Brady, you know, raised the profile of football. He didn't. Like, football was going to be great without Tom Brady. The the NBA was going to be what the NBA is without LeBron. I mean, you could probably argue that he nominally raised the profile of a sport. But what Pele did for soccer, nobody, nobody in the future, I don't think in any major sport could ever duplicate it because – he completely raised the profile of it in America and worldwide. That is funny that you brought it up, too, because I, I get these AP news alerts. And when uh, Pele passed away, the you know they gave me the obituary alert, and they describe him as the winner of a record three World Cups and standard bearer for the beautiful game. And I'm like, <laughs> I'll, I'll rely on the AP for that. That's pretty well done. He was standard. the standard... The standard bearer and a three-time World Cup winner, which is an all-time record. If you think about standard bearing, there, you know, nobody's going to say LeBron was the standard bearer for the NBA. They're going to say he was a generational talent and a first ballot Hall of Famer. That's, you know, it, it, they're not. Pele was unique in that way. Um, we'll talk in the four o'clock hour about Kevin Warren, who may be leaving the Big Ten Conference Commissioner Chair for the Chicago Bears presidency. What is he after? What is he chasing? But before that, we're going to go to the Les Schwab Invitational Tournament out in Hillsboro. We'll be uh, joined by a reporter who's got his finger on the pulse of what's going on, Bronny James against Jackson Shellstad, coming up tonight. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Friend of mine, Dan Dickow, once upon a time, got together with another friend of mine, Ben Sherman. And they founded and continued to operate and boosted the profile of an enterprise called Scorebook Live. You might have seen it. Dan Dicko does a little uh, podcast called The ISO, and he had an interview with a reporter that works for Scorebook Live named Andy Bu- Andy Bueller, who 
basically helps produce. I think he produces the podcast and he does a bunch of reporting. I don't know. We're going to talk to him here about this. But if you are covering or interested in high school sports in our state, Scorebook Live's got you covered. And the Les Schwab Invitational Tournament every year brings all these great players, talented players, uh, to gymnasiums locally. They're out in Hillsboro playing games. Last night or yesterday, West Lynn played a game against Tualatin. Uh, we talked about it on air. Jackson Shellstad, the commit for the University of Oregon. Dana Altman was in the house watching his guy play. He, uh, he had a great game. Scored 43 in front of Dana Altman yesterday. And then Bronny James, LeBron James' son, had his first round game against Jesuit on Tuesday. What was that scene like? You've got the number one team in America, Duncanville, playing Bishop Gorman. Bunch of four and five star players. And this matchup coming down the pipeline, Sierra Canyon and Bronny James against West Lynn and Jackson Shellstad coming down the pipeline. I think that game is tonight. Andy Bueller joining us, Scorebook Live. He's got you covered. Andy, did I get that right? Do you do the producing on the ISO podcast, or what do you do for, for Dickow? Uh, yeah, at one point I did uh, produce Dickow's podcast. Now uh, I'm in kind of a roving reporting editing role. I uh, covered the state of Washington for three and a half years uh, up to last year. But, yeah, a little, little bit uh, of, of everything. Love it. Uh, I love that you got your uh, finger on the pulse of this Les Schwab Invitational Tournament. Just give, Let's start with Bronny James and the scene on Tuesday as they play Jesuit and they, they're in this tournament. How big, of, uh, how big of a following, how much of a rock star is Bronny James in Sierra Canyon right now? Yeah, no, Bronny. I mean, he's he seems like uh, you know he he's a pretty got a pretty laid back demeanor. Um, you know, he doesn't emote a ton, but and I, I wouldn't know. He doesn't give interviews, uh, but just the what follows him is is pretty unbelievable. I mean, he's flanked by three security guards uh, at, at all times, and and uh, you know his carries a pretty big spotlight, millions of followers on social media, and you know the past couple of days at the Les Schwab Invitational, it's it's you can see. You know, LeBron James jerseys from high school, Lakers jerseys in the crowd, and, and, you know, tons of people showing up for Bronny. Yeah, you've got now Sierra Canyon and Bronny James playing the top team in the state of Oregon, West Lynn High School. Jackson Shellstad, the uh, five-star recruit who's headed to the University of Oregon, is the leader on that team. Give us an idea of West Lynn beating Tualatin. In your mind, uh, you know, I'm not that tuned in to the high school scene, but how big a win was that for Shellstad and West Lynn? I think it's a win they expected. It was a, a rematch of the state semifinals in 6A last year when Westland got bounced. Uh, Westland's regarded as the top team in Oregon this year and, and you know, has backed it up through a couple of days at the LSI. Uh, but I think to pull one out in overtime against the Tualatin team where, you know, Shellstad kind of had to take over. Westland only went six deep, and, uh, you know, it was free throws that willed him down the stretch, and Shellstad ends up with 43, perfect 10 of 10 for the from the line, and, you know, the first place he walks as soon as the uh, final horn sounds is right over to uh, Dana Altman sitting courtside. That scene had to be surreal. Altman stayed for the whole game. He did, yeah. I think that's interesting that, you know, here his future coach is coming to check him out and watch him. Uh, also, uh, you know, you've got you've got uh, Mookie Cook, who a uh, five-star pledge from, I think he's playing for one of the Arizona schools now. He's also there. 
in the gym. Uh, I read your report about it, but you know, give us an idea. Sierra Canyon against West Lynn. If you know, if someone's going to go to this game, are, what are we talking about? Standing room only? Uh, you know, do you already have to have a ticket, or you know, how tough a ticket will that be? You know, I think it's it's going to be a tough ticket. The they put fifty percent of the tickets online uh, for the entire event, sold out through Christmas, and fans have been coming the day before to Liberty to to secure the next day's ticket. So, um, you know, they had I think capacities listed around thirty two hundred, thirty two fifty. Um, and on Tuesday for Sierra Canyon's first game, uh, it, it had to have been, you know, well beyond that. I mean, there were people hanging over the balconies, you know, filling a- anywhere you could find room to stand, uh, you know, a fan was, and it, and it was, you know, I think it was so, so packed that the floor began to get slippery and it was, uh, you know, <laughs> pretty remarkable for a first round game that turned into, you know, a 30 plus point game. Andy Bueller with us, reporter for Scorebook Live. He's talking about the Les Schwab Invitational. How does Sierra Canyon match up with West Lynn? You know, I think Sierra Canyon matches up well. Uh, you know, Ronnie is, is the leader of this team. Uh, in, in past years, he's carried a pretty big spotlight, but wasn't necessarily the go-to. And, and this year he is. He hasn't turned the ball over uh, through two games. Was phenomenal, uh, you know, both nights. Uh, 22 points the first night, 19 points the second night, uh, and I think he's 16 of 21 from the field. Uh, so it, it all starts with Bronny. Uh, Dylan Matoyer, another guard, uh, you know, pretty solid. Uh, kind of the, the two seniors at Sierra Canyon. There's a lot of transfers. You know, Ashton Hardaway, the son of Penny Hardaway, committed to Memphis, uh, transferred over from Duncanville, actually. Uh, and and he's, he's a nice kind of stretch forward who can – step out and shoot and play with his back to the basket. Uh, and, you know, in, in the backcourt with those guys is a five-star uh, Isaiah Elohim. Uh, and, and he's a junior. He's uncommitted. And uh, there's a lot of eyes on, on him this start of the season. He's had a really nice start. But Sierra Canyon's got a ton of size, a ton of length. Uh, and, and they've shown through two days uh, that they can really shoot the lights out. Uh, Central Catholic coach David Blue last night said, you know, hey, we, we scouted this team, and we've never seen them shoot the way they did against us. And so, you know, it's, it's a focus group. Yeah, I think it's interesting, too, to kind of see where the top teams in the state of Oregon rank against some of the top teams uh, nationally. Uh, who do you expect to see in the finals? You know, I, it's, it's, this is chalk. I mean, Duncanville is the, the number one team in the country in the SB Live Sports Illustrated Power 25 National Rankings. Uh, Sierra Canyon is 16. Uh Bishop Gorman, who Duncanville's playing tonight, is sits at number 20. And so you got three nationally ranked teams. you got a hometown team in West Lynn that, that really, really wants uh, to put on, a, you know, in front of a local crowd. And I know this event itself means a lot to Jackson Shelstad, who grew up going to it. Um, but it's it's hard for me to, to, to not pick a Duncanville team with, you know, a couple five stars and, and uh, Sierra Canyon, a team that's just been, you know, looked pretty much unstoppable these last couple of days. I love what you guys are doing with Scorebook Live. Uh, ben Sherman, big fan of him, and as uh, you know, the the content guy there and, and editor, and of course Dan Dickow's vision. Give us an idea for people who've never seen Scorebook Live. You can go to scorebooklive.com. But give us an idea of kind of, you know, uh, who is your typical reader on Scorebook Live? Yeah, a typical reader is a big fan of high school sports. Uh, if, you, if you like, you know, high school sports at a statewide level. Uh, if you like rankings, you know, polls, feature stories, game coverage, photo galleries, highlights, uh, all the above, uh, SB Live, we, we want to be your one-stop shop. And, 
Uh, it's a state-by-state -state coverage approach, so scorebooklive.com slash Oregon is, is how you get to the Oregon site. Uh, Washington, the same same deal, and, and then on. But, you know, covering covering high school sports not only at a state-by-state -state level, but also top-down at, at a national level with some uh, national rankings, player lists, uh, and, and, you know, tons of coverage of big events like the Les Schwab. Yeah, I think it's a big deal what you guys are doing. I appreciate your work. Uh, Andy, uh, before I cut you loose, obviously – Bronny James gets a lot of the attention. Jackson Shellstad gets a lot of the local attention. But give us an idea of who you think maybe uh, – give me a couple of players that are still playing in this tournament that if people are coming out there, you go, hey, you got to see this guy play. Yeah, it starts with, I think, the top-rated prospect in the field, which is who's Ron Holland, 6'8 forward at Duncanville. He's recently committed to Texas last month. Uh, him and K.J. Lewis who's an Arizona commit, a four, four five-star uh, off-ball guard. Um, those are the two guys that I point to. Uh, they just they just look like professionals. You know, you, you look at the LSI, you talk to some of the local teams that go up against this national field every year, and, uh, you know, it's it, there's such a stark contrast depending on the team that comes in and of just, you know, the local team versus the national team. And, and you look at Duncanville, and they look like a professional team, and, and those two guys are, are, are kind of the, the tip of the spear I know Bronny gets all the headlines, and you know he certainly backed it up with his play so far as, as being kind of a spectacle on his own. But Duncanville uh, is appointment viewing. Um, but outside of Duncanville, I mean, they played Bishop Foreman tonight. There's some uh, former NBA players, uh, kids on that team as well. Uh, Jason Richardson's kids, mm. Jace Richardson and Jackson Richardson, a junior and a freshman for Gorman, uh, really, really solid players. And Gorman's point guard, Junie Mobley, is an Ohio State commit. He's, he's uh, you know, among the best point guards in the country. You know, uh, it's really interesting to me. I just, you know, I pulled up the Twitter profile of, uh, you know, that, how, that high school, Duncanville Basketball, and their Twitter profile is the official Duncanville Boys Basketball page. State champions, they rank them all. When I go and look at Tualatin, why does it say Tualatin Men's Basketball? It's boys basketball, isn't it? Well, you know, it certainly is if you're a sports writer. Uh, you know, I mean, they're they're not 18 yet, and you know, yeah. That's, what are they trying think, to do? Uh, is that they trying to intimidate me, or know. what are they doing? <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. Uh, no, but it's it's you know, you you look at a team like Duncanville, and it's like, boy, they it's everything about them uh, is is you know, they, they look like men. They they yeah. you know act like men, and they they act like professionals, and uh, yeah. But <laughs> that's an interesting distinction. Yeah, I looked it up, and I was like, why is Tualatin calling him men? Because, you know, as a sports writer, the last thing you want to do with a college team is call them boys or girls. So you're always really cognizant of that when you're covering college sports. And then you go down and you cover high school sports, you say boys and girls. And uh, the Tualatin boys basketball team, Tualatin High School, their Twitter says Tualatin men. So I don't know. i got to have a talk with them, Andy. Hey, hey I appreciate you joining us and giving us your expertise. For people who want to read Andy Bueller, you can do it at scorebooklive.com. His stuff is all over there. It's a great site if you're interested in high school sports uh, in our state, in our region, wherever you may be listening. Andy, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks, John. Appreciate your time. Good stuff there. Man, Bronny James, like I've got friends who live outside the area, and they're like, why are you not at the Les Schwab Invitational? I'm like, because I'm on air. I'm working. I have a J-O-B. But these semifinal games are taking place at night. And I think it would be a lot of fun to get out to Hillsboro and see an 845 game, Jackson, Shellstad, Westland High School, 
take it on Sierra Canyon. And then in the other semifinal, you got Duncanville taking on Bishop Gorman from Vegas. Judah, there's going to be rims rattling in Hillsboro. I got to do play-by-play for the LSI a few years ago when it was Ben Simmons against uh, Peyton Pritchard and Jalen Brown was there. Mm-hmm. And just now to, to see that in retrospect and like to think about the matchups we get tonight and the way Andy uh, laid it out for us just now, it's hard not to get excited and hyped a little bit. And, it, and Liberty does a great job hosting it. I've played a lot of baseball there, but the, the, the gym there is great. Great atmosphere. Bronny's in town. Like It's good stuff. There's A-listers courtside. It'll be fun. I mean, and the, the talent level that is on display, like I think Dana Altman, University of Oregon coach, is there to see Jackson Shellstead play, but... There's a whole bunch of other players there that could help Dana Altman. So I think I know what he's doing by showing up there. Uh, the Punch and Audio is coming up. Uh, plus, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about what is going on in the world. Kevin Warren to the Chicago Bears. What happens to the Big Ten Conference if the commissioner leaves? We'll talk about it coming up. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. On tomorrow's show, Kenny Dillingham, Arizona State's new head coach. Got some questions for Kenny. Where was your head at the end of the year? Were you distracted, Kenny? What are you building at Arizona State? All of that uh, on tomorrow's show. Also on tomorrow's show, Sean Hyken, who uh, does the Rose City Report. He covers the Blazers. He had an interesting piece about uh, Gary Payton, uh, the uh, second and... His uh, progress or lack of progress, lack of help, health to this point. Does anybody else find it very strange what is going on with GP2? Uh, Are the Blazers mishandling the communication? Uh, It seems like uh, on one hand there are some reports out there that say, oh, he should be back here. He's getting ready to come back in a couple weeks. Others saying, you know, we don't know. Chauncey Billups saying he doesn't know. What the hell is going on with Gary Payton? the second um what do we know well we'll find out tomorrow as sean hyken will join us to uh give us the skinny on that front i want to talk a little bit about kevin warren big 10 conference commissioner the engineer of usc and ucla to the big 10 the guy who stabbed george kleofkov in the pac-12 in the back that guy i want to talk about kevin warren for a minute now kevin warren came from the nfl he'd worked for the vikings had been in the nfl Went to the Big Ten Conference, became the commissioner, and then engineered that deal, that mega deal with Fox, uh, engineered the expansion deal, grabbing the two L.A. schools. Good for Kevin Warren. Kevin Warren also has done a lot of good things for Kevin Warren. And I don't begrudge him for that. I'm not one of these people that's like, hey, it's all about you. But he's got a PR team and a crisis management team that is very focused on elevating and promoting him. And if uh, you are in the PR and marketing world or crisis management world, you may know some of the characters involved with this. Uh, Chuck Cecil, the former Arizona football player who played in the NFL, his wife Carrie owns and operates one of these firms. She has been right beside Kevin Warren as he is making his appearance on 60 Minutes, as he is on the cover of magazines. And if you follow her on Twitter, 
you see all about like the work that she's done for Kevin Warren and for other people, her firm, no doubt retained by the Big Ten and Kevin Warren. So uh, it's a lot of this, I think, has been in the coming and in the making. I think Kevin Warren all along had larger aspirations than being the Big Ten Conference Commissioner. Now, the Big Ten has issued a statement saying that Kevin Warren, you know, evaluates all opportunities. No doubt his PR people have their fingerprints on this thing. Oh, this is just uh, him examining another job. But there is some smoke here that could have some fire attached to it. And it looks like the Chicago Bears looking for a team president. Kevin Warren may be looking for an exit from the Big Ten Conference back to the NFL. Now, those in the industry tell me that this may just be about Kevin Warren trying to negotiate a better deal for himself. He's done pretty well. Better deal for himself. Uh, maybe he's frustrated that the Big Ten Conference does not want to grow beyond adding USC and UCLA. Maybe he just wants to be in the pro world. Whatever the case, uh, I think it's interesting. He interviewed in person for the job. Um, he uh, apparently, you know, he was heavily involved in helping the Vikings get U.S. Bank Stadium built. So he, uh, you know, the Bears are very interested in that part of growing their empire. And I happen to think Kevin Warren probably wants to be commissioner of the NFL one day and replace Roger Goodell. So... Getting back to the NFL makes sense for Kevin Warren. Now, what would it do to the Big Ten if Warren left? I think it would stabilize college football. I think it would put, I don't think it would put an end to the discussion about teams like Oregon, Washington, Stanford joining the Big Ten, Notre Dame. But I think it pumps the brakes on it because I think he was the driving force behind all of that, behind the scenes. And so I think it kind of signals to the rest of us that Kevin Warren may have looked around the Big Ten Conference and gone, I've done all I can do here. I look like a hero. I negotiated this huge deal. I expanded the conference. All that can happen for Kevin Warren now by sticking around the Big Ten Conference offices is that he can continue to collect a check and he can only make mistakes. Keep in mind, this was a guy amid the pandemic that some in the Big Ten footprint were saying, this guy needs to be fired. He's mishandled this thing. We're frustrated with Kevin Warren. There was a lot of frustration with him, and now he just everything he touches is gold. So I do think his PR team and his crisis management people, who were long a thorn in the side of the Pac-12. Remember when the Pac-12 said all those grenades getting thrown from the Big 12 conference, all that stuff that's coming from the Big 12, all that misinformation? I suspect some of the same characters in the PR crisis management world were working behind the scenes as fixers to try to muddy the waters for the Pac-12 and make things look worse than they were for the Pac-12 conference because they wanted destabilization. Why did they want that? Because that made it more likely that more teams could be added to the Big Ten or the Big 12. And, oh, by the way, check and see where those PR firms uh, are working, who retains them, who's paying their payday who's paying their invoices. It's the Big 12 and the Big 10. So I do think this is real. I think Warren to the Bears probably makes sense for the Bears. It may make sense for Kevin Warren's career. But I think if you're a Pac-12 fan, you kind of got to read the tea leaves a little bit. And I think you're, in the end, left thinking, hey, this probably means that he's banging his head against the wall now in the Big 10 trying to get more expansion, more money, kind of looking around going, hey, I've done what I can do. 
Now, I may be reading it wrong. Maybe he's just trying to get a raise and an extension. People do that. It's not my style, but Kevin Warren might be doing it. But I don't think he needs to do that to get a raise and an extension. I think all he'd have to say is, I want a raise and an extension. I think at this point, given what he's done, he'd get a lot of traction there. But I think uh, it says something about the college landscape. And I also think what has happened to college athletics, like some good, some bad in the last few years, I do think the transfer portal was by and large good for players. It allowed them the same freedom that coaches had in leaving places. I do think that NIL was good. I think players should be able to monetize on their name image like this. I think it's off the rails, when, though, when you combine those two things because now you have unrestricted free agency and you have booster groups that are just buying players. Uh, I think it doesn't work. So Kevin Warren may be looking at that going, you know what, I'd rather be in the NFL where there's a collective bargaining agreement. It's much simpler. It's much easier. There's only headaches here at the college scene. But I also think the damage that the Big Ten Conference has done to the college landscape is immense. I think they have blown up tradition. I think they have turned their back on, uh, you know, sort of 100-plus years of, of history and tradition, and I think they're chasing money. They're chasing money like they're a pro league. And somebody in that entity, whoever replaces Kevin Warren if he leaves, or, or maybe the new president of the NCAA, who is the, the former governor of the state of Massachusetts, somebody's got to pump the brakes and go, hey, like millions and millions and billions of dollars, that's great. But we also have to remember we're not supposed to be a pro league. We're not supposed to be the NFL. The more we look like the NFL, the worse we look because we're not as good as the NFL. The teams aren't as good. The quality of play is not as good. The playing field is not as level. Like, there's no salary cap in college athletics. At least in the NFL, there's a hard salary cap, and the Seahawks can't spend more than the Kansas City Chiefs. That's how the Chiefs get to the Super Bowl. But in college athletics, there's no salary cap. There's no collective bargaining agreement. It's just a lot of gray area. And the haves every year signing up for the four-team invitational tournament, like four guys who show up early for a pickup basketball game, get their names on the list first. Ohio State got here early. Clemson got here early. Alabama got here early. Georgia got here early. Like, give someone else a chance. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Washington and Texas in the Alamo Bowl. That one is uh, coming up tonight. Ducks found a way in the Holiday Bowl last night. Uh, if you missed the top of the show today, uh, 28-27, 10 wins in Dan Lanning's first season as head coach, 10 wins for Jonathan Smith at Oregon State as well. One of the programs is ready to throw a parade, and justifiably so. It's been a while since Oregon State won 10 games. The other program has some fans who are going, oh, it's just 10 wins. Lost to our rivals. I get it. You're disappointed. But uh, getting that bowl win last night, and uh, to be fair to Camden Lewis, he kicked the game-winning extra point from a cow pasture. True. Lined up on that turf, planted his foot, kissed the football off the upright, got the win. But let's be real. That PAT was a metaphor for the season. Not always pretty. Not always simple. But very interesting. Wildly entertaining. And mostly successful. 
Uh, I thought Dan Lanning was really good in the post game. He held the trophy up. He said, hey, this thing had nothing to do with me. This was my guys. It was our players. They believed. I mean, he says all the right things. That's when he's at his best. He really is. Uh, I think he's at his worst when he's failing to manage a game right, and I think he needs some help there. But I gave him a B plus, and I got some grief for that. People said, oh, why, why are you grading him so high? B plus. Can't give him a B. He won 10 games. 10 wins in college football at a conference that was as good as the Pac-12 at the top. Uh, pretty good. Uh, I'll accept if you said B or B minus, I would accept it. We can have a minor argument over it. But if you start saying he got a C, to me a C is a 7, 8, maybe a 9-win season. Like if they lose the bowl game, they flame out in the bowl game, I would buy a C plus. Maybe I'd drop them a grade. That's like a final, you know? I'm trying to be a professor here. Uh, we're going to play Punch It Audio. I have the best sound. Let's do it. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Dan Landing, after Oregon's win over North Carolina last night, said he was really proud of his team. Punch it. What a fun group to share a stage with right now. I am um, thrilled and excited for our team. You know, North Carolina is a great team. They fought. That was a game that came down to the very last second, as we all know. Um, we talked about it going into the game, that we played 720 minutes of football this season, and we had to play 60 more, and we played all 60 of it. So couldn't be more proud. That's a testament to our players and how hard they work. 19 seconds left in the game. North Carolina called a timeout. It's fourth and two from the six-yard line. Bo Nix is about to be under center. Mac Brown says, I need a timeout. What happened on the final play call? Dan Lanning and Bo Nix explain what happened. Let's correct that real quick. When who makes the call? Who made that call? <laughs> Bo did a good job calling what he wanted on that one. So that's one of our um, just our go-to plays. Um, we feel really good about that play. We've run it multiple times. It's um, you know it's hard to stop. It gets guys in um, good situations. It puts um, you know Troy, T. Ferg, Chase, those guys in good positions to to do what they do best. Um, and sure enough, they brought House Blitz, and Chase knows over and over that that's the throw. If he, we get House, he's going to get a natural pick. They're going across the middle, um, and we Bucky did a great job of picking up the protection, and um, we threw it over the middle, and we got a completion for a touchdown. And um, it just goes to practice and practice and practice. You know, you run that play over and over, and um, I think everybody on the sideline kind of wanted that play, and I just happened to be the one that might have verbalized it. So uh, it's one of our favorite plays. Credit to Bo and credit to Drew and the offensive staff and every single player on offense. It's what he just said, that they had belief in what we were going to run and how we were going to execute it. And, you know, when the suggestion was made, it was like, hell yeah, let's run that. It made me think about the Cal game earlier in the season. Kenny Dillingham, then the offensive coordinator at Oregon. I texted with him after the Cal game, and I ended up on the phone with him. He was on the bus. They were leaving Berkeley. He was sitting on the bus. They were waiting for the players to get on the bus. He was the only coach sitting on the bus. He sits next to Dan Lanning normally uh, when they make their trips. And Kenny Dillingham and I ended up on the phone. And I asked him because it looked to me in the Cal game like Bo Nix was making a lot of decisions at the line of scrimmage. And I asked him, I said, what's going on out there? And he said, 
that he trusted Bo Nix so much as a play caller that he had given Bo Nix, by about the third or fourth game of the season, basically a green light to change any play that came in. He could run whatever he wanted, whatever he felt comfortable running. It was his call. He said, I have that. Even if it's the wrong call, he says, I just, I, I want to give him the keys. So I kind of wonder last night as Oregon is facing a moment of truth in this bowl game, on that sideline and that timeout, when Dan Lanning says to Bo Nix, what do you want to run here? And Bo Nix says, this is what I want to run. Like, this has been forming all season long. Bo Nix has been making these decisions all season long. And and, and Kenny Dillingham told me that Bo Nix mostly got it right. But he said, even when he got it wrong, I was okay with it because I want the quarterback to be making a, a play that he feels good about. Credit to Bo Nix. They got the call right. It was a hell of a throw. And by the way, he threw it right at the referee, if you noticed on the replay. Referee had to duck. It's a great catch by Chase Coda, who's got a deep, rich history. His family and his dad, Chad, playing for the Ducks and was in that great secondary that Nick Aliotti coached once upon a time. But a uh, really nice moment, I thought, for Oregon at the end of the game. Because if that ends with an incomplete pass, a sack, uh, a, a turnover, uh, we all kind of look at it and we go, oh, what a bummer way to end the season. But Oregon snatched victory from Mac Brown and North Carolina in that moment, 28-27, and then held on in the last 19 seconds. And, oh, by the way, Camden Lewis still needed to make the extra point. Chase Coda caught the winning touchdown, or I guess the tying touchdown. Punch it. Just what Bo said, if they were bringing house blitz, I knew. Uh, actually, the whole bowl prep against our defense, we never got that look once, but then we got it uh, here on our practice site here for the bowl one time, and we missed it and went over it, and then sure enough, it showed up in the game. It was, it was the same exact one, and perfect, and Bo saw it. It was just an easy touch on from there. Let's pivot to the NFL where Michael Lombardi is talking about the Denver Broncos. What is wrong with the Broncos? Is it Nathaniel Hackett? If so, they fired him. Should be fixed. Is it Russell Wilson? Is it something else? Here's Michael Lombardi. Punch it. If I were the GM of the Denver Broncos, I'd have a meeting with Russell. And I would call him and his agent in, and I'd have somebody else in the meeting. And we would, we would talk about how your entitlement has ruined the team, how you have to have so many parking spots at the stadium, how you have this office here, how everything is catered around you. Like you basically did, you disassociate yourself with the team. Like there's, it's one for all and all for one. Like we're not going to have double standards. We're going to hold you accountable, just like we're going to hold other players accountable. Somebody's got to have a man-to-man conversation with with Russell because he didn't play well. And the longer you give in to the player that doesn't play well, you hurt your team. You create a culture that you can't sustain. I think discipline was the word that Penner used a lot, and accountability which was voided because when you have double standards for players, you know, then all of a sudden it hurts the other players on the team. I think that's what it's going to take. It's going to take alignment. I'm not sure I agree with all of this because there have been double standards for winning teams historically. The Jordan rules. Sam Smith's great book about the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan. He had a whole separate set of rules that he adhered to. Normal team players didn't have to. Oh, and this was a big deal. In today's superstar-driven sports world, I do think you get 
coaches who will coach players different ways. Now, I'm not saying it's great that Russell Wilson is disassociated from the team or wants six parking spots, but I also think that you could probably find similar behavior in other teams around the league and other successful teams. I do think it is amplified when you don't have success on the field. Derek Carr is going to sit out the final two games for the Las Vegas Raiders. Marcus Mariota is going to sit out the final two games for the Atlanta Falcons. Both players have been benched. Will Brinson talks about potential landing spots for Derek Carr. Where could he end up punching? He'll be people will be intrigued in him. You know, he's a he's got a a, a pretty nice floor in terms of his ability to perform at a you know as a veteran quarterback at a high high level. Um, you know to you know be malleable when it comes to various offenses. He'll he'll rent, he'll buy the house next door to you as a coach. So you. You've got that going for you if, that's, if, you're, if you're desperate for a friend. Uh, if, you, if you don't want your quarterback moving in next door to you, maybe Carr's not your guy. But I mean, like Carolina would be an easy landing spot for him, right? Um, wouldn't be crazy to see him go to San Francisco either, depending on what they do with, you know, I, I don't think Kyle Shanahan wants him moving next door to him, but I do think you know, Derek Carr would be a, a pretty good distributor in that in that San Francisco offense, depending on you know what they do with Trey Lance and Brock Purdy and, and, and then Jimmy Garoppolo is a free agent as well. Um, you know, New Orleans is, you know, feels very much in flux uh, that position. Miami, uh, you know, who knows with the Tua stuff, who knows how that's going to end up playing out. There's a lot of quarterback situations. Indianapolis, um, there's a lot of quarterback situations that are going to be, you know, very much, um, you know, sort of in flux. And, you know, Atlanta kind of needs somebody potentially. There, there are some landing spots out there, uh, you know, this year, may, more so than it felt like there would be six months ago. Yeah, and I think, look, there are some landing spots. I'm not totally comfortable with this whole process of players going, look, I'm not going to start for you. You're benching me. Therefore, I'm not even going to be around the team. Like, there's part of it that makes me uncomfortable, probably more uncomfortable than Russell Wilson having extra parking spots. Like, I would still expect David Carr and Marcus Mariota and other players making 15 to $30 million at quarterback to show up and be a contributor in some way for their salary um, but it seems like that's just not where the mentality of today's NFL starting quarterback is today you know I just I think it's weird it's a different time yesterday on the program we had Dave Uyungalele on the show the father to DJ and Mateo Uyungalele he was on the program he talked about DJ the quarterback transfer who's transferring to Oregon State, pursuing his goals. What was it about Oregon State that appealed to DJ Uyunglele? Punch it. You can't stop trying to reach your goals by worrying about what people think about you. You just have to keep chopping and understand that things are going to be said about you. You know, all around you, you just you just have to stay focused on what you got to do for you and your, and your development as a person, as a student, as an athlete. And, you know, I'm just grateful for the opportunity that he has to be able to just try his best to help that team win, right? It's not about DJ. It's about DJ coming into a team, Oregon State. Oregon State didn't just want DJ. It needed DJ. Now, I gave my best Uyangalele pronunciation for Big Dave. He's walked around his whole life 
six foot four, 370 pounds, having people mispronounce his name. I was rather proud of the fact that uh, Big Dave gave me his blessing. Listen to this. My attempt to pronounce Big Dave's last name. Punch it. Now, Dave, before I let you go, am I getting your last name right? Uyungalale? That's perfect, mother. That's perfect. <laughs> I won't try that's it again. Perfect. All right. Let you go, no, Dave. that's perfect, Dave. <laughs> you did a great job. Uyungalale. There it is. It's about as good as I can get. And I only have that because I have it phonetically written down in front of me at all times. People asking me left and right. How do you pronounce that name? DJ. That's how you pronounce it. Leave it here. You got the BFTR. Five at five is coming up top of the hour. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I'm excited to, uh, to see Washington play Texas tonight in the Alamo Bowl. Friday, you got Pitt and you got uh, UCLA on Friday in the Sun Bowl in El Paso. And the Sun Bowl can always be best summarized by asking which team wants to be in El Paso. And I don't mean that as a slap to El Paso, but there's some, there's some teams that show up to El Paso that are going, hey, we just got to go through the motions. We got to get through this. Uh, you know, and is UCLA one of those teams or not? I don't know. We'll find out on Friday morning, 11 a.m. on CBS. UCLA and Pitt. Uh, Cotton Bowl on Monday, USC and Tulane. And uh, I'm not a USC hater, although I accused I get accused of being a hater. But I just think USC had its had its eyes on the playoff before they got blown off the field by Utah in the Pac-12 title game. And uh, as a consolation for losing that game, they're going to go to the Cotton Bowl and play Tulane. And oh, by the way, this is like the World Cup final for Tulane. This is the Super Bowl of Super Bowls for Tulane. And Tulane's an 11-win team. And Tulane has a great running back and can run the football. And USC is going to be without two starting offensive linemen. Will be without USC. Uh, doesn't have Jordan Addison at receiver. And linebacker Raylan Goforth, who uh, had a whole bunch of tackles this season, has jumped in the transfer portal and is headed to Washington. Uh, I think Lincoln Riley did some really good things in his first season. He uh, exceeded expectations. I thought he won about two or three more games than I had him down to win. But this is a trap game for USC on Monday at 10 a.m. Oh, by the way, also being kicked off at 10 a.m. Pacific time, uh, this Cotton Bowl, I kind of worry that USC is walking into an ambush. Uh, keep an eye on that one. I'm picking Tulane in that game. Uh, Utah is playing Penn State later on Monday in the Rose Bowl. That is a 2 p.m. kickoff on ESPN. I think that's going to be a great game. I think it's going to be very similar to the back-and-forth, back-and-forth field that Oregon and North Carolina had, but it'll be surrounded by rose petals in Pasadena. Penn State has quality losses on their resume. They lost to Michigan. They lost to Ohio State. Nobody else beat them. Does Utah belong in that conversation? Would you put Utah on par with Michigan or Ohio State and say, hey, as ranked teams go, 
you know, Utah, Michigan, and Ohio State, those are the three teams that Penn State lost to. Like, I could see us saying that at the end of the season. Uh, Penn State has not beat a ranked team this year. Utah's locked in. And to me, this has a very similar feel to it that as the Tulane-USC game. I really do think both teams want to be in this game, but I think Utah really wants to be in the Rose Bowl. They want they Last year was about making the Rose Bowl. And then they got beat. They felt like they should have won. They lost the lead. They got beat. A whole bunch of Kyle Whittingham's players says, we're coming back. Um, this is closing the loop. And this is a Utah team that is terrific in big games. Utah's a two-and-a-half-point favorite. That spread feels about right to me. That's how good this game is. Uh, we get a lot of people predicting a lower-scoring game, kind of a 27-24, a 24-21. I think it's going to be a little higher scoring. I have it 34-31, Utah, over Penn State in the Rose Bowl. So uh, to recap, Pac-12's 2-1 and one in bowl games. I I have been correct on all three of those games against the spread, so I'm 3-0. and But I think Washington beats Texas outright. That's a win for the Pac-12. I think UCLA beats Pitt but does not cover on Friday. Uh, I think they win a close game. They're favored by 5.5. I don't think they cover. So it's a win for the Pac-12, but it's not uh, UCLA is not going to cover the spread. I think Tulane's going to upset USC in the Cotton Bowl. Pac-12 will be 2-1 and one in, in bowl games uh, at that point. And then I think Utah beats Penn State. That's 3-1. and one. That's 5-2 and two overall. I think it's a good bowl season for the Pac-12 conference, and I think that's where this is going to end up. A um, couple things uh, that I want to share with you because you're a listener and membership has its privileges. I'm working on a piece for tomorrow that you'll want to read at johnconzano.com. So if, you're, if you don't have a free subscription or a paid subscription, grab one. Whatever works for you works for me. So just go to johnconzano.com and, and sign up for the subscription so you get it in real time. Um, I got a piece coming down the pipeline. It's going to update you on an interesting little story that's going on behind the scenes when it comes to the University of Oregon and Oregon State and the Pac-12 schedule that is normally out in early to mid-December has not yet been released. I've got some intel on why it is that that's taking so long. I'll share it tomorrow in print. We'll talk about it on tomorrow's show. But uh, I think tomorrow's show is going to be dynamite anyway because Kenny Dillingham's on the program. And also on the show tomorrow, uh, we will uh, be visiting with Sean Hyken to talk about the weirdness around the Gary Payton II GP2 injury. Is he going to get his championship ring? They're going to play the Warriors. He's supposed to get his championship ring. But is he going to play for the Blazers ever? Or what is going on with that? Because there is a national report from Chris Haynes out that says Gary Payton is progressing and moving towards re- returning to the lineup. But the Blazers are saying he can't even practice. He's not there yet. And Chauncey Billups says, hey, I wish it was true that he's coming back. But we don't. that's not the case. So what is going on with that injury? And, uh, you know, it was supposed to be a, a nice little signing that the Blazers made in the offseason and really hasn't come to fruition. It's been disappointing to this point. So we'll talk about that. But the 5-at-5 five five is coming up at the top of the hour. We'll start there, and then we will uh, turn it over here on 750 The Game to Thursday Night Football. And across your affiliates, you'll want to leave it locked in as uh, their great programming is coming down the pipeline as well. But uh, we still have a little bit of time left on this radio show. we got a great show tomorrow that is – 
action-packed, wall-to-wall. You'll want to be there. You'll want to listen, and I appreciate that you do. All right, uh, so coming up, uh, top of the hour, we'll do the 5 at 5, and uh, then I will send you right into NFL Thursday Night Football, or you can uh, you can run into uh, checking out the Alamo Bowl, Washington playing against Texas a little bit later tonight. So uh, stay tuned on that one. Uh, by the way, uh, Mountain West Conference is looking for a commissioner. And uh, Craig Thompson, who's been on a 24-year run as the commissioner of the Mountain West, is hanging it up this week. Uh, what, will, uh, what will the Mountain West Conference do under new leadership? And uh, I think if you are somebody who is interested to see kind of what is going to happen with uh, with uh, you know the the realignment, you know Gloria Navarez, the former WCC commissioner, has been named the Mountain West Conference commissioner. We've had her on this show. Maybe it's time to get her back. Talk about what is the Mountain West going to do as realignment affects them as much as anybody in this trickle down effect. If they they happen to lose some teams to the Pac-12, the five at five is coming up. I want you here for it. You got the bald faced truth statewide. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Every day on the show, I give you the five biggest, baddest, most important things that are going on. Today is no different. We got big news today. I'll tell you what it means and what it is. Let's do it. The Five at Five. Brought to you by Mercedes-Benz of Wilsonville. See more than 4,000 vehicles at Swickert.com. Pele, who won a record three World Cups and became one of the most commanding sports figures of the past century, died today. He was 82. He was the standard bearer of what the Associated Press called the beautiful game. He had undergone treatment for colon cancer since 2021. He'd been hospitalized last month, a whole bunch of ailments. Pele uh, died at 3.27 p.m. in Brazil due to multiple organ failures. Funeral planned for Monday and Tuesday. His casket will be carried through the streets of Santos, a coastal city where his career, career began. The king has passed away. Pele, dead at the age of 82. I said it earlier on the show. LeBron, Tom Brady, Joe Montana, even Michael Jordan. Like, you can call them generational players. We can say, hey, they elevated their era of the game. But nobody did, and no future star athlete will do what Pele did for the game of soccer. The fact that I was eight or nine years old and knew who Pele was tells you all you need to know, like you did too. Pele passed away at the age of 82. Second thing in our five at five, let's talk a little bit about what is going on with Kevin Warren. The Big Ten Conference Commissioner is apparently interviewed for the Chicago Bears job in person, according to ESPN. Kevin Warren, landed a mega billion dollar media rights deal for the Big Ten, stole UCLA and USC from the Pac-12, stabbing George Klyovkov in the back in the process.
Kevin Warren apparently looking around maybe the Big Ten and going, hey, I've done what I can do here. College sports, not as much fun as the NFL. Too many complications. No collective bargaining agreement. And I got to deal with Iowa and Minnesota not wanting me to add Washington and Oregon. Or is Kevin Warren just trying to negotiate a better deal for himself? I think we'll soon find out. Kevin Warren apparently interviewing for the job of Chicago Bears team president. Keep in mind, Warren came to the Big Ten after working for the Minnesota Vikings, where he helped them build a new football stadium. Bears would very much like to have a U.S. Bank stadium of their own. That's number two in our five at five. Let's go to number three. A little bit of uh, shade being thrown in the uh, wake of the Texas Bowl. Texas Tech senior linebacker Dimitri Moore has fired back to Ole Miss coach Lane Kiffin. Lane Kiffin threw out an accusation saying that Moore spit on and possibly used a racial slur in the direction of one of his players on Wednesday. Texas Tech, by the way, beat Ole Miss 42-25, ending the year with a fourth straight victory. Joey McGuire, the coach at Texas Tech. There was a scrum between the teams after a fumble in the fourth quarter. Texas Tech recovered it. There was pushing and shoving between the players, and Ole Miss receiver Jordan Watkins was assessed a personal foul. After the game, Lane Kiffin said the penalty should have been on Moore, who was number 11 for the Red Raiders, instead of Watkins, who wears number 11 for Ole Miss. Apparently, uh, Lane Kiffin says the announcement got mixed up and that there was a racial slur involved. And he went on to say, I don't think that's the point of what we're talking about. It's about the spitting part. I brought it up to the officials, and he said, he's not crying, he got spit on. It's because something was said. I don't know, he said, she said. Lane Kiffin always seems to find himself at the center of these things. Not surprised by that. Ohio State, like some others, preparing for the college football playoff. But Ohio State quarterback C.J. Stroud says he's tried to avoid social media, especially in the wake of losing to Michigan last month. It was media day today as the Buckeyes are preparing for the semifinal matchup in the Peach Bowl. It'll be the Buckeyes against Georgia in the Peach Bowl. They lost 45-23 to Michigan. And it appeared at the time that Ohio State was knocked out of the national championship picture. Stroud, by the way, has also lost twice to Michigan. Despite throwing for 349 yards and two touchdowns, Stroud said people were not proud of him. Multiple players said they saw hateful messages directed at them and their teammates, or they stopped looking at social media altogether in the days after the game. Now, this became a big story at Media Day. And I got news for 18 to 22-year-old football players. Like... This is your world, social media. You're equipped to navigate it better than just about any other demographic. Young people on social media pointing out that it's a big part of their life, but they don't want it in their life when it turns negative. 
I think it's really interesting. I do think my 20-year-old is more equipped to kind of handle the social media world and the pressures and the negativity. Like, she just knows how to handle it better than grown-ups, better than me in some cases. Even though I have people, like, tweeting at me all the time. Like, it just doesn't get to me. But my 20-year-old, is she just got a kind of – she grew up in it. And these players grew up in it. I can't imagine being a college football player on that stage – And having grown people talking crazy at you because something didn't go right on the field. Turn your notifications off. But I also am looking at players going, hey, this is your world. You want to go fix it? Go fix it. Social media. Finally, talk about the 5 at 5. Let's talk about the Oregon Ducks winning their 10th game of the season. It was kind of a big deal in the Holiday Bowl. 19 seconds left. Bo Nix at quarterback. Chase Coda in formation. This is how it sounded. Nix drops back underneath. Touchdown, Ducks! Wow! And watch as Nix just retreats enough as the blitz is in his face. And he sidearms this ball right there. He got the catch. And then he tries to turn across the goal line. That is our 5 at 5. The Oregon Ducks winning the Holiday Bowl is number 5. It, but it it's not complete without the extra point because after the touchdown, it was just 27 to 27. As I pointed out to my 8-year-old daughter, I said, he's got to make the extra point. And she watched, uh, it, like everybody else watched, as Camden Lewis lined up to make what was a gimme on that cow pasture in San Diego. Talk about your heart and your throat. If you're that kid, oh my goodness. Camden Lewis was a bright spot for Oregon this season. He was automatic when it came to PATs. Just a terrific performance from him this season. I thought that it was pretty interesting, too, to watch him in the postgame as he was walking off, kind of waving everybody away like this is just ridiculous that this uh, extra point went off the upright and made it through. Uh, but Camden Lewis this season, really, really good. Like, didn't miss a PAT, was great on field goals. He's come a long way in his career, and uh, I think it was fun to see him make one, even though it was difficult.